Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Voices in Recovery is produced by Freedom's Path Recovery Society, a registered Canadian charity. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider a donation to Freedom's Path Recovery Society. All donations go directly to assisting Freedom's Path in providing their services free of charge and helps us keep the podcast going. We are grateful for any and all donations. This podcast discusses difficult topics such as childhood abuse, drug and alcohol use, sexuality and sexualized trauma, and more. If you are under the age of 18, please speak with your legal guardian prior to listening. The opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individual and not those of Voices in Recovery or Freedom's Path or any other organization. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chiniki. We acknowledge the Satina, Hura Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Okay, so I don't know very much at all about tonight's guest, uh, Miss... Miss? Sure. Is that okay? Yeah. I was just... I was making a joke. I was going to say Miss Mary, and reminded me of a song. Her name is Mary. <laughs> <laughs> I've been a lot of songs. What can I say? Yeah, that's right. Not How on purpose. It just what's happens. That? I said not on purpose, but I am in a lot of songs. Yeah, of course <laughs> you are, right? Uh, Mary's a popular name. It's a good name. Like, obviously, because it's popular, people like it. They appreciate that name. Um, it's making a comeback. I think it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably, like, a lot of names that maybe faded out might be coming back. This is an interesting way to start the podcast. Yeah, I was going to say, I like, like I didn't... Okay, so because you pushed this interview up, yeah. I didn't have a chance to listen to any other episodes, and so I have no idea if you have, like, a protocol for how you start, so... We don't have a protocol. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. I was just making a joke, because we don't really do anything the same every every episode, <laughs> and I'm sure people probably go, fuck, at least there could be some consistency, eh? That's fair. <laughs> like, the biggest pet peeve I have with podcasts is, like, when people talk for 20 minutes about, like inside jokes and fucking nothing so let's not do that but yeah besides that the good news is you and i don't have any inside jokes that's true right because we've only met once that's right we've only met once i mean i guess we have some inside jokes about that night no not really there's not really much to joke about yeah also darcy was there so yeah yeah (laughs) and it was a super nice night it was yeah yeah. it was a lovely night yeah Yeah. so thank you for coming on on such short notice Mm -hmm. uh really we really appreciate it uh yeah, I take it away. Tell us about yourself. There's <laughs> like literally, I wouldn't even know where to start because I don't even uh, know. Okay, um, I, I I'm good at talking. I'm not good at starting. Um, let's see. So I found out from you yes. that you're you are in recovery. Yes. Okay. Yes, so I tell am. me tell me about that. Like, how did that come about? Um. So I've been sober for 14 months as of yesterday. Congrats. Thank you. You're um, welcome. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Um, how did it come about? I think um, so. I think like a lot of lot of folks, young people in this day and age, I had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. Um, it was a very easy thing to reach for, trying to cope with my chaotic family life and any other trauma that made its way downstream to myself. Um, and 
to be honest with you, like I never liked it. Like it was mm -hmm. just, it's so ubiquitous with society that it's hard as a young person to resist if you don't have a reason not to. And so it does seem like a magic elixir. Yeah. Time, right? Yeah, exactly. And like in my early, early twenties, I tried, like I've tried to quit twice before and honestly, like some folks are going to think this is bullshit, but like, I think I was too young because mm. like I needed to get more, like, I think I, I really needed that substance there for me to feel like myself mm -hmm. um, or rather like whatever version of myself I thought I was at 21, 22. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't ready and I, I needed it as like my sort of social security blanket and um, yeah. And I felt like I was ready a year and a bit ago. Um, it was COVID. So that mm -hmm. made it a little bit different. Um, do you think it sped it up for you? Like, like, did yes. you have a period of COVID where you just went completely bonkers no. with shit or no? No. Okay. Sweet. <laughs> no, it didn't speed it up in that sense. Okay. Um, it sped it up because I, um, was about to turn 30 and in my mid twenties, I had decided that I wanted to be a sober parent. Hmm. Um, and also that I would quit by the time I was 30, which was honestly like a number I pulled out of my ass at the time. Cause like 30 felt super old at 24. Um, it is super old. <laughs> so, so I was like, yeah, sure. Like I'll quit by then. And, um, I actually had a miscarriage. Hmm. Um, I'm sorry. So after that happened, I was really upset about it, obviously. Mm. Um, and it like, it happened at a time where like. I'd say the last two to three years of my life have really been about like what I call a sacred reparenting process and like mm. getting to know sort of like the women in my family and our histories and like, cause I always had a really difficult relationship with my mom, like mm -hmm. my whole life. And now we've been reconnecting, but like all of that goes back like way, way, way back to sort of our history mm -hmm. as a people. And so doing all of this like reparenting work and working through stuff with my mom and all of that stuff, like I really wanted this kid so I could put that work into action. Mm -hmm. So when that didn't happen, um, that was when I drank my face off because I oh, was okay. like, this is this is awful. Um, far worse than I ever expected it to be. Like not like mm -hmm. the, yeah, the disappointment I would say was yeah. worse than I expected. And so, um, yeah, I, uh, I got really sick after, and I think I woke up that morning with like a terrible hangover and I was like, this is it, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And I just knew. And, yeah. um, yeah. And since then I haven't drank and I'm going to like mention the COVID thing because <laughs> there is one, like, I think what makes it easier to quit during COVID is that like for a long time bars were closed. And so yeah. I wasn't put in social situations where I like felt pressured to drink. Yeah. Um, and now that they're opening up, like um, that's been something to navigate. Like this past summer, I thought I was really, really worried about it going into the summer being mm -hmm. like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And it was okay. Um, right I on. found other things to sort of tide me over. Um, no, that's not what I meant to say. <laughs> I, it, it was okay. It was okay. Um, I, it just, it wasn't as hard as, yeah. as I thought it would be. And then yeah. um, when the bars did open up again, um, I went out with a friend who I used to go drinking with, actually, and we used to live together. And 
I was really nervous about that. And I was like, mm -hmm. this is going to suck. And, and also like, I have dreams about drinking. I mm -hmm. don't know if this is a common thing with, yeah. with recovering folks, but like drinking, using dreams for sure. Oh my God. It's terrible. Terrifying like I wake too. up and I'm like, do I actually have no willpower? Like, did that actually happen? Like it happens all the time. And, um, so I think in the back of my mind, I like, there's a part of me or there's a voice in my head that like doesn't think this sobriety thing is real or that yeah. it like isn't big enough to be a problem. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I had a drinking dream like the night before and I was yeah. like, this is terrible. Like it's going to be awful. And it was fine. Mm -hmm. I, I ordered a virgin cocktail and everything was okay. <laughs> like it was, right it was okay. And I think also, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm 30 now. I'm 30, 30 and a half. I have, I happen to have a really wonderful tight knit group of sober friends and I didn't have that in my early twenties. Mm -hmm. Um, I had like chaotic romantic relationships and alcohol everywhere all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but now like I think having that reinforcement, like I have other friends that have been sober for over 10 years, um, who were my age mm -hmm. and like, it's just, it's helpful because we hold each other accountable, but we're also very open about how sobriety and wellness and, living a good life for yourself looks different for everybody. Do you, do you think that, uh, so what are a couple of things that help you stay away from drinking? Like, obviously you just mentioned one, your, your fellowship of your mm -hmm. like-minded humans, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, that, and that's something so cool that when we find that, like, mm -hmm. what are some other things that you do? So I think a lot of it kind of like, it all is connected for me in the sense that like, once I started doing more work in terms of like uncovering my trauma, my family's trauma, mm -hmm. um, that was where my drinking came from. Like it doesn't, mm -hmm. it's not in my family. I, I didn't have parents that drank. That was not like a chemical type of addiction that mm -hmm. came down for me. Um, it just happened to be the thing that I did. Uh, but like, yeah, I think prior to me quitting, um, I had already been intentionally going down that road and mm. learning about the trauma. And like, I think a lot of it was just like understanding how addiction is essentially like associating a behavior with a certain feeling that you're trying mm. to get rid of. And um, yeah, I've just really been working for a long time uh, to sort of feel my feelings and, mm. and feel them in a healthy way because feeling them all the way through means that you don't have to reach for the thing. Like you can just feel it mm. through and it's hard, but it's also like you're stronger than you think you are and you don't mm. have to reach for that thing if, if you don't want to. Yeah. It's a learned behavior to reach mm -hmm. for, right? Like it's to reach for anything to, to distract us from that pain or whatever's in front of us, mm -hmm. you know? Um, okay. I can't remember what I was going to say. I was going to say something to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> do you cut these parts out like when you stop thinking like uh, i have no idea okay what he does. I, I think he probably leaves them in there so that people can go yes he's not it's perfect okay yeah. okay and it's all good right like because the truth is i don't mind like okay. I, i'm i'm imperfect man i am like i'm the guy like if you mm -hmm. want to come talk to me i would love to right but don't expect to be a, like talking to someone who's going to say, Hey, this is how you get perfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Cause yeah, that's not I me. I personally don't trust anybody mm -hmm. that like says that they're healed or they're perfect. Cause it's a journey, you know, like yep. it's, 
there's there's no end point. I don't want to see an end point. Like there's going to be an end point when I'm dead. You yeah. Know? Like, like what would the end point look like if it happened when we were alive anyway? Exactly. Right. Like yeah. what, what the hell would that look like? Yeah. And like even if I feel like even if we personally reached our own endpoints, like the world is so fucked up that it wouldn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> like, it's just like, yeah. It would be so insignificant yeah. compared to the gl- global problems, Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. So then we'd all go do drugs again. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We'd be back out there drinking exactly. again. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it's better that we're just messed up in our own ways. That's right. So you mentioned yeah. uh, reconnecting with your family mm-hmm. and your culture. Um, yeah. So I would love to hear. I would love to hear about that if you want to talk about that. Sure. Yeah. I, I understand it involves trauma. So, of course, it's totally up to you right? Totally. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. So my family is from what is currently known as the Philippines. Uh, my parents immigrated in the 1970s. Uh, my dad came out here because he was sponsored by a relative. My mom did not want to follow him out. Mm. Um, she like was one of the first, I think she was the first like female in her family to like graduate from engineering school. And she was like teaching in her university by the time she was about 24 or so. So like she had her own life and she, she was good. But, um, Mm -hmm. in that time, um, yeah, her parents, uh, saw the opportunity of coming to Canada, so-called Canada and, uh, yeah, told her that she should go. And so she did, um, she was dating someone else other than my dad and yeah, <laughs> that's the whole thing. That makes me laugh, actually. Just like a little yeah. aside, I asked my mom about this now, and then I'm like, "What happened to your like? Like you should have married that other guy because like dad was a jerk and like." Yeah. And um, I don't know. She's she doesn't entertain those ideas, but I think they're hilarious. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, you get to, you get to like laugh at them, right? Yeah. And your mom's like, it's still a little too serious for me. Mm. <laughs> you know what? I've never thought about that because my mom is such a hard ass. Like she won't like admit that she's hurt. Yeah. So like. Yeah, you're probably right. Like, I mean, I wouldn't know, right? It's just <laughs> I, whenever I encounter like that, that, that uh, resistance, I think mm-hmm. there's a, there's a there's a little bit of a love in there somewhere. Yeah. Right? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And she's also just like super practical, so yeah. I think she's like, well, you know, it's whatever. What, so. What's the point of talking about it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which does not excite me. At all. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. So my mom came out here. Um, she had two of my eldest siblings already, so mm-hmm. they were uh just under two and like nine months i think my mm-hmm. sister and my oldest brother they came out here um and they were in toronto and then within their first month or sorry not first month first year here my mom was pregnant again um and so yeah she went through like a really intense like postpartum culture shock with like basically having her amazing life well what was a pretty good life anyway like in the Philippines, being a teacher, mm. she was also a professional dancer. Like she had an amazing, like yeah, she she had it she had it made for herself. And then, mm. kind of blinking, and then all of a sudden she was like in a high rise apartment in the eighties with three little kids, and like in this totally different place where like she couldn't speak the language, and she didn't have a job, and she didn't have her own money, and mm. like she couldn't get around, and so like that. Um, she has opened up to me like in more recent years about like. Yeah. Um, what that was like for her and like that being I would say probably the biggest trauma of her life Um, I would say yeah like it's it's huge like I can't and I can't I wouldn't know if it's the biggest but I I would say it's a big one it's huge yeah yeah. like and I think also like because immigration trauma is something that we don't talk about in this country Um, even though immigrants are the backbone of this country and we celebrate we Mm -hmm. at least 
Justin Trudeau celebrates immigrants. Like, like yeah. celebrating immigrants is part of our, our image as Canadians. Mm -hmm. um, and we very rarely talk about, like, the struggle of mm -hmm. what it's like to immigrate, to leave your whole family behind, to, like, not be able to visit, and, mm -hmm. like, the culture shock and the racism and all of it. Oh. Like, it's there's so much. And, yeah, I've thought about that a lot in recent years because um, my parents are, at that time, they were both younger than I am now mm -hmm. when they did that. And... Yeah, my mom was 29, I think, when she had my youngest brother. So, wow. yeah, so that's, they went through a lot. And um, I can only imagine, like, how, like, what toll that took on their marriage, too. Because, mm -hmm. like, um, I also come from a pretty devout, like, Filipino Catholic background where, like, there's no divorce. You work it out. And also, like, if you're one of the lucky people that gets to immigrate, like, you're considered lucky. And so to complain about it isn't really an option. Like, mm -hmm. and... Also, this was in the 80s, the 70s, 80s. Like, there was no, like, Facebook status where you could say that you were upset. Like, you know what I mean? Well, like, and they're probably, like, I'm not even sure if there was, like, a Catholic immigration organization or any mm -hmm. sort of immigration organizations back then. Right. And th that's also something that I've thought about, too. Like, because um, I've, I've personally, like, had a lot of privilege in my life. But there also have been times in my adult life where I've had to, like, use food banks and... Mm -hmm and access community help and support that way. And my parents, like, never, ever use the food bank. Mm -hmm. And, like, like I can't imagine really, like, going through that and not having that help. And, like, I think some of it was pride, but I also think that it was the fact that that stuff wasn't made accessible to them. Yeah. Um, I know that it's a little different now, but, like, just mm -hmm. the thought, like, if I could, if, if I were to meet a family, like, a young family in their 20s with three little kids and, like, and they had just come to Canada, like, I, I don't know anybody that would let them go without, but they went without for mm -hmm. a long time. So, wow. so yeah, both my parents were younger than me now, mm -hmm. um, going through this and yeah, I can only, I can only imagine like what that takes. Um, yeah, me too. I could only speculate, right? Yeah. Cause yeah. what it takes now is a lot, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of support. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. So it is like, it doesn't make the process of immigrating easier necessarily. No. Like it's still hard to, you know, be displaced on purpose mm -hmm. or somewhat on purpose. Um, but I will say that I can imagine it was exponentially harder 20 mm -hmm. years ago, 30 years ago. So no, that's more than that. That's like 40 years it's ago It's almost now. 40 years ago, yeah. Holy shit. It's actually 40. Do you ever have moments where you feel like 2013 was like two years ago? Still? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. You're not alone. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's 2021, but yeah. It's Wait, what? doesn't feel like it. <laughs> it took me a second. To, what? 2021? Yeah. <laughs> that can't be right. Yeah. Um, anyway, I was born 12 years after my brother um, here in Calgary, Treaty 7. Um, I like to call myself the menopause baby because my mom was 41 and we thought she was going through menopause and then I appeared. And then the world <laughs> got exponentially better, Yeah, obviously. of course. <laughs> and on that day, the sun shone <laughs> down. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's like, I think like I, I joke about that, but like it's like whenever I talk about my family, like I explain that because my siblings and I have the same biological parents, but we could mm -hmm. not have had more different childhoods and mm -hmm. upbringings just because like with the time and like what they went through and what I went through, like two totally different things. So you're the oldest? I'm the super youngest. Super youngest, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So I personally did not experience like immigration. I didn't experience like the poverty or the culture shock. Um, what I experienced was um, my parents being 
like settled minority immigrants here in Calgary after, gosh, I don't know, like 20 some years. Um, and like they were in a much higher socioeconomic bracket at mm. that point. Um, so I actually like, I grew up in this like rich suburb, um, but like my house was chaos. Like my parents mm. fought a lot and I like never saw them like be kind to each other ever. And my siblings were teenagers at the time. My sister was 15. My next brother was 14. And then my youngest brother was 12 at the time I was born. So they were these like teenagers trying to process their trauma and also being like tasked with raising this baby. Um, so I had this like, in that sense, you could say that there was some like communal traditional aspects of my upbringing, but yeah. they also really weren't. Mm -hmm. um, Cause yeah, I had, I had a lot of caregivers, but like nobody knew what they were doing. Um, and I say that with love. I say that mm -hmm. as an adult looking back and knowing that my parents and my siblings did the best they could, but mm -hmm. like, yeah, nobody had any fucking idea what they were doing. Um, and it wasn't fair to my siblings. I will say that mm -hmm. it wasn't fair for them. They, they deserved well, They wouldn't have been to, equipped for it, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and they deserved to have their adolescence, mm -hmm. um, without that. Um, but my parents were too busy trying to get away from each other at that time. Um, again, going back to the strict Catholic upbringing, there's no divorce. So my mom stayed with my shitty dad for a very long time. Um, literally up until he died. And, um, she still like refuses to say bad things about him, which is like, you know, cool, but also like God's not going to judge her for that. Cause he was a terrible person. Mm. So yeah, so that's, that's what that was like. And, um, my dad and I were actually really close. Um, he passed away in 2007. Um, but that was always like a really fraught thing as well because mm -hmm. like he was very violent. He had addiction issues. And so like it was always a complicated relationship because my siblings had not a great relationship with him. Mm -hmm. Whereas like I had a really good relationship with him. And so when he passed away, um, it was challenging because like for them, I think rightfully so, they experienced some degree of like relief. Mm -hmm. So did my mom, 100%. Um, and like I was sort of navigating grief quite young. Like I was, yeah. I was 15 at the time. And so like having to go through that and then feeling isolated like from my own family mm -hmm. because they were having such a different experience that they couldn't hear me out for the ways in which that was difficult. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that was that was really challenging. Um, I think like for a long time in my life, I felt like losing my dad was like the most traumatic thing I had dealt with, like given that age that I was at, because mm -hmm. um, it did like it changed everything. Like I was different, and that's yeah. a hard age to lose your parent. Oh, um, yeah. But I think also fifteen years later, half a lifetime later, um, it's like. I don't think any of us really had a shot like at, at being okay, given the mm -hmm. situation we were in um, and the conditions that we were around. Like, um, yeah, it just, it wasn't fair. And there was a lot of trauma that like, again, was like passed downstream um, that my siblings experienced, that I experienced. And like, that comes from, again, like the immigration trauma, the dealing with the racism, mm -hmm. like the, the being disconnected from our own culture and our land and, mm -hmm. and all of that. Um, and I think that we all kind of did the best we could in our own different ways, but there yeah. was harm in, in like 
no matter which way you slice it, we were hurting each other. Yeah. Well, because it was so common to be hurt, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it was, it, I would imagine it's like being cut all the time. Yeah. Like when, like being, like racism, right? Like, because I can't imagine it in any other context, like where it sounds, whenever I hear for, about it from people who experience it, obviously not from people like myself who just pontificate, um, it um, it reminds me of that, like, a thousand paper cuts, right? Like, yeah. death by a thousand death paper by a thousand cuts. cuts. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, like, I think, because I, like, I name racism because of, like, the generation I'm in and the language I have for it. But, yep. like, my parents and my siblings, like, that was just part of life. Like, that was just part of yep. what they dealt with, and that was just another thing. Like, um, so I think also it's, like, coming to understand that, like, the privilege I have to be born in this time Mm -hmm. and to have the experiences that I have and the access that I have, like, allows me to address these things that would have been micro or non-existent Mm -hmm. in the past. Um, And, like, at first I was, like, like, first off, I I get why, like, everyone hates millennials. I understand. (laughs) I don't don't really get it. I don't really get it. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't get it. I hear it all the time from people my age, but I don't understand it. Because I think there's assholes in every generation, so... There are assholes in every generation. Yeah. Like, I don't one think it... could say that, like, boomers are all assholes. Right? I'm not saying that. I said one could say. Yeah. But... Well, and, and there's that <laughs> saying going around, and we expect them to be able to lump it and take it. What is it? Like, okay, boomer? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Which was coined by, by Gen Z, actually. But, yes. That's fair. Yes. Whatever, whoever coined yeah. it, it's good. Yeah. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah. So, like... The reason why I bring that up is, like, I get why everyone hates on millennials being, like, too sensitive and shit. But it's also, like, something I've come to understand um, about folks of my generation and and particularly folks that have, like, lived through a lot of trauma and are, are now processing it as mm-hmm. adults is, like, we have the ability to process these things. We have the That's ability right. to feel it. Um, I don't know who said this. It was probably Gabor Mate, because it always is. Um, <laughs> but um, the idea that pain will travel through a family until it has the opportunity to be felt, mm-hmm. where it travels through generations until someone can feel it and heal it. Yeah. And like... Ooh, I just got goosebumps. <laughs> I think that is Gabor Mate. Probably. Fuck. I, I mean, sorry <laughs> if it's someone else, like... I don't nope. mean to just like pass it on to oh, it's the white men. Like it always gets passed, but yeah. whatever. We can, yeah. Anyway, shout out to him if he did say that. Yeah, it's, it's word. A good thing. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's. I feel like that's probably the best way to describe it. Like it's. Mm. It kind of like, like I think that my siblings and my parents were too busy surviving mm-hmm. to feel through these things to be able to make sense of them because like. There's, I think, like, for every right reason, like, there are certain, like, topics that they can't even sit through, like, Mm -hmm. let alone do a deep dive into. And, yeah, like, the fact that I'm doing that and I've committed to this kind of life, like, Mm -hmm. that's healing for them, too, and that's healing Mm -hmm. for the next generation. And, like, yeah, that's, it's a lot of work. I'm taking a big deep breath because, like, intergenerational trauma is very unfair. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to, like, name that because... Like, it's so much weight. Like, it's mm-hmm. the weight of your siblings and your parents and your grandparents and all your ancestors and all of their oppression, and it lands in your body. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's shitty. Like, that's probably why, like, millennials don't want to procreate and we all have chronic illness. Well, <laughs> like, yeah. realistically. But also a part of, like, what why the millennials 
pointed this stuff out mm -hmm. or pointing this stuff out. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is also one of the reasons why, just one of the many reasons why I don't get offended by it, by people who are, are highly sensitive. Because seriously, why would I be offended by someone noticing something that I don't notice? Exactly. Like, because yeah. that's what they're noticing. Mm -hmm. They're noticing stuff that I've been trained to not notice. I am grateful. <laughs> that's how I look at it. Because by, I'm just saying, I look at it like that because it's teaching me. It's giving me an opportunity to be like, oh, yeah, fuck, I never liked how that felt. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't put my finger on it. Yeah. That person put their finger on it. Yeah. Right? Now, does that mean that, uh, now that's not the same as like cancel culture. I'm not talking about mm -hmm. that, right? I'm simply saying I'm grateful for the millennials that noticed all of the, a lot of this shit is bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. The stuff that we got stuck in, the patterns, right? Yeah. And nothing will change until we change that. Mm -hmm. So thank you, right? Like, and people can hate on millennials. Thank you, millennials. They, people can hate on you all they want. You know, they hate on Gen Xers too because we just like don't give a shit. Because <laughs> we're got in, all the trauma. We, we're carrying the trauma, so we're busy. <laughs> we're busy dealing with the trauma yeah. and trying to process it while the millennials and the boomers are fighting. So we're just like, okay, you guys fight. We're gonna hang out here and try to be okay. <laughs> Well, okay, so it's funny you bringing that up because, like, when we met last week, we were talking about um, just the culture of violence that yes. Gen X grew up in. Yeah. Um, and, like, our conversation was the first time it had dawned on me that my siblings, who mm. are all Gen X, um, like, they were living in, like, a way more violent world oh, than yeah. I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And, like, and I was just thinking, I've been thinking about that for the last week, by the way, since, oh. since we met, about yeah. how, like, what that does to an entire generation of people. And mm -hmm. like when you're constantly like exposed to violence in all these different forms, like you get desensitized. And so mm -hmm. of course nobody's been speaking up about it before yeah. because it's nobody's noticing. Yeah. So because we're all used to it. Mm -hmm. Like we're used to carrying that around, right? Yeah. Like like having your your parent spank you or your school spank you. Mm -hmm. Like we're just used to it. And that's not a good thing to be used to. No, right? it like, isn't. One of the things that you said last week, that I mean, there's a lot of, we had a really good chat. I, I really appreciated the, the time. Um, one of the things you said was, oh, fuck, now I lost it. This is common for me, though. Okay. Um, but then again, <laughs> it, it's probably a result of trauma, but it's common for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's but I mean that's probably part of it anyway, and head trauma and stuff like that. Um, what was it you were saying? Yeah. Oh, you had said something like, "Oh yeah, how did you guys turn out to be like decent people?" Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, what we it were was, talking right? About that because yeah, because yeah, I I wasn't just trying to like be nice. No, I, I for I sure. I can be a nice person, but legit, like yeah. I I thought that you and Darcy and Michelle were all like wonderful people, and I'm like, how did you guys come out of this terrible era of of hitting each other nonstop, mm -hmm. like or rather like of young people being abused mm -hmm. i think and like first off like that word wasn't used obviously never. it never would have been used it wasn't considered that but like when you told me that you were getting hit at school i just like had a heart attack because i was like how could you do that to a child oh yeah how could they right like that's a good question yeah like, because it was okay and, and and this is this is where we go into that like this is why it's important for other generations to notice things that we miss, right? Mm -hmm. Is because we're so enmeshed in it. Like we're enmeshed in it. Yeah. And there's going to be a generation after the millennials that says, hey, you guys miss this, mm -hmm. right? Because... Oh yeah, Gen Z like, like calls right? us out on our yeah, shit all the time. Yeah, because now we're unearthing this stuff 
and and we're all able to see it more clearly, right? Mm-hmm. I, I just I hope, and I don't know how this will how this will happen or look, but it'd be nice to see us like all everybody just start working together. That'd right? be great. Wouldn't it? Like, just yeah. start working together, just to make like the changes. Like, intergenerational, like, healing, yep. actually, intergenerational healing. Because yeah. I think that would be the sign of that, that true healing is mm-hmm. beginning, right? Is when we all, we're not chirping at each other anymore. Yeah. We're just working together. For sure. Yeah. And, like, I I love learning from elders. Like, elders totally. are... It's vital. Yeah. Like, there's they have so many stories that, mm-hmm. that I don't have that I can't understand, you know? And, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to get to a point where that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like it requires that openness and it requires like, I think really being able to look at yourself honestly so that mm-hmm. you can look at other people honestly because otherwise yeah. everything's just going to trigger you and you're going to fight everybody you see. And like, I think just going back to my family, like that's in my own work, that was what I had to realize was happening mm. with my, well, my siblings, more or less, my, my parents, for sure, my dad, 100%, like, and also, like, you parent, and you love, and you, you are in relation with people the way that you know how to be, mm-hmm. so, like, I think of the ways in which my parents, like, you know, despite their best intentions, failed us really badly, mm-hmm. and, like, they were probably failed, too, otherwise, oh, they wouldn't yeah. have done that, because, like, I don't know. I'm But that's that's a sign of like a mature perspective, right? Is to understand that right. it, it goes back longer than just them. It does. Yeah. Oh, it totally does. Yeah. And um It's like a chain reaction, right? Yeah. And again, like that type of like I think like emotional intelligence um mm-hmm. and like being able to think about these things was not an option to previous generations, at least in my family anyway, because like there was so much like day-to-day trauma that they had to get through. Um, it's not to say that like my life gets to be a hundred percent healing all the time. Like I still have a job, you know, like I still, I still do things. I still Mm. have my life, but I think like being able to have that distance and having like my privilege and my experiences and having like knowing what I know about my history and my Mm -hmm. ancestors and, and the weight that I'm carrying, Mm -hmm. um, that gives me a sense of responsibility Mm -hmm. and that's why I stick to it. Yeah. Right on. Mm-hmm. And so, so far, so good, right? Like, I, what, what else, other things, like, tell, tell me about, tell us about your life. I say tell me, but it's only because I'm sitting here asking the questions. But tell <laughs> us all, tell us all about, like, what it was like growing up for you in Canada. Like, what was that like? I mean, we, we, we know there's, obviously, there was racism, right? Because that's just yeah. a part of our culture here. Yeah, um... I don't know. I mean, like, I guess I would look back on it, even to some degree for myself, like I would look back on growing up in the mid nineties, early two thousands and seeing like there was racism and being like, Oh, it wasn't that bad. Like there's still a part of me that says that because mm-hmm. like I see other forms of really violent racism on TV and on social media. And I'm like, that never happened to me. And like, and also I should mention mm-hmm. like as like a non-black person of color, as a non-indigenous person of color, like there is a lot of privilege I have to, like, and, and a certain, like, level of almost, like, immunity in Canada mm-hmm. because, like, Canada loves to celebrate its model minorities, like, mm-hmm. loves to. Um, so, yeah, like, there's there's that. Like, there's, I think that there's shared experiences for sure, but, like, there's a reason why systems of oppression, systems of oppression operate the way that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Can you give me another question? Sure. You know what I'm going to do <laughs> is yeah. I'm going to return. I'm going to um, my note sheet. Yeah. Precisely. Can I well, talk about ADHD? Actually, of course you can. Okay. That was I was just looking at that. I'm like, <laughs> the living with ADHD. Yeah. Jumped out at me on your okay. list. So yeah. Yeah. So okay. So I, I was diagnosed with ADHD like a month ago. Okay. <laughs> it's very very new to me. Um, but I lived with like depression and PTSD for a long time. Mm -hmm. And like, so I, I will like respect privacy in the sense, but my brother, um, lives with, uh, mental illness, um, like in, in a pretty like debilitating kind of way. Mm -hmm. And so like growing up, seeing that and like knowing that, like, ha like having come from the same environment where, where that happened, like, I had a familiarity with depression, with mental illness before it became a more national conversation mm -hmm. or international conversation. Um, but also like the stigma was also there. And so there was, I grew up really like in fear that mm -hmm. that was going to happen to me because like without having the language at that age, like I knew that I was sad all the time mm -hmm. and like I knew that it would probably happen to me. And when it did, um, in my early twenties and I was first hospitalized, like it was hugely traumatic for me because mm -hmm. I had seen my brother go through that and now I was going through it yeah. and like, I felt completely like doomed, like mm -hmm. doomed because like I was part of this family curse, um, of being like pathologized and victimized by the mental health industrial complex, mm -hmm. um, and feeling like there was no way out. And so that was really, really scary for mm -hmm. me. Um, so at 21, when I was 21, I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And like at that time in my life, um, it was like, it felt really good because mm -hmm. all of a sudden I had like these people with their white coats and degrees and qualifications telling me that like the insanity and chaos that I was feeling all the time actually had a name and it felt good. Mm -hmm. And then that lasted about six months. And then after that, it was just like the worst experience because mm -hmm. like, I don't know how much you or your followers know about BPD and like personality disorders. I would suggest probably more than the average bears. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, yeah. It's a very like, like it's essentially like the psycho ex-girlfriend diagnosis. Like it mm -hmm. doesn't look good and doesn't feel good. And like, and it's also like it's, you can move in and out of the diagnosis really easily based on like the way that you present. So like I then felt like I went from feeling really, really seen to like being reduced to this list of awful symptoms. Yeah. And like, and then I was just like, this is all I'm ever going to be. And, mm -hmm. and that was like, and it was so dangerous for me because like having the experiences that I'd had and like latching on to this sense of identity that came with that diagnosis so hard. Um, and then like realizing that it was just like an excuse for doctors to not want to work with me and psychologists to not take me on and like, mm. and just to, to sort of deal with the stigma that comes with that diagnosis and other personality disorders. Mm -hmm. So that was really hard. That was hard to deal with. And I, um, I had a lot of chaotic relationships as a result. And yeah. like, I think what was obvious to me at that time was like my romantic relationships. Cause they were all like so volatile and so like, just out of control. Mm -hmm. um, but looking back on it now and like the work that I've been doing recently, like I'm realizing that like just relationally I was very violent. Mm -hmm. um, 
I had learned that from my dad. I had yeah. learned that from from seeing like really no examples of love and compassion growing mm -hmm. up, like consistently. Uh, not to make excuses for it, but this is what I realized that I was doing. That like I I've always been combative in all relationships and all like whether romantic, platonic, whatever. Like I'm I've always been causing trouble and I've always mm -hmm. like just. Yeah, like I, I've never <laughs> been able to like maintain things for very long and not in a healthy way. Um, I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> oh, you're you're doing good. I, I don't remember what I was talking about before. Um, you're talking we, about your life. How do we get to ADHD? Because that was the, the original question was about. Uh, tell us about ADHD. Yeah, that was. That was yeah, I'm having yeah. a total ADHD moment right so, now. Well, that's okay. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. Thank you. So I, yeah, I was diagnosed Thanks, with BPD at that time. Um, I, I got out of the diagnosis probably within three years, realistically, mm. but that's like the most fucked up thing about it though, because it's like you get out of the diagnosis and you still feel like shit on the inside. Of course. And like, as long as you're not cutting yourself, sorry, content warning, like if, as long as you're not cutting yourself and like throwing baseballs in your ex's like front window, like mm. it's nobody's going to take it seriously. Yeah. So it's like, I still had that chronic sense of emptiness and, and I want like to pause that, right there yes. because that's an important point to make is that unless you're fucking acting out yep. and potentially hurting yourself or others, people don't pay attention. Exactly. And that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Period. Sorry. I just wanted to point, put that in there. Well, yeah. And I think also like that feeds into like the, the discourse around sobriety and recovery too, 100%. because it's like this idea that like your addiction isn't valid and it doesn't deserve to be treated unless you're like really destructive with it. Yeah. Like there's no need to do that. Like you can intercept ahead of time and validate the harm that you're already causing without mm. having to destroy the entire world or your own world yeah, with it. For sure. Um, so yeah, I was still struggling. I was still like having hardcore, like interpersonal issues. Mm. Um, but like I wasn't able to find help. I think a lot of people were like, you're fine. Like you're, you're high functioning. You're like there, I, I had a really hard time convincing like therapists and psychologists and doctors that I wasn't okay. And wow. that was really hard for me because I was like, I, I don't, I don't, I hate that I have to perform for you people. I hate that and I you have needed to help. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. And, and I wanted, like, I've always, I think part of um, having like a sick, sibling or having somebody in the, in the family that was going through mental health issues like that made me really proactive about my own stuff so mm. like yes there was like a sense of fear in the beginning but also like when I when I felt things happening for myself like I was like okay how do I fix this like what mm. is the course of action here um and mind you like in the beginning it was also like because I believed that I was a problem like inherently and that I needed to be fixed in mm. like inherently I don't feel that way now but at the time I did yeah. um so uh yeah that was yeah so I was trying to convince all these therapists and fighting with therapists to like shock to absolutely no one I was fighting with mm -hmm. a lot of therapists um and uh yeah I kind of just gave up I gave up on the system because like the system has never cared about me or anybody mm -hmm. like me really um you just have to do a tiny bit of research to see how like the medical system overall is like inherently racist oh and my sexist, God. Um, particularly to like black women, like the number of black women mm. that die in childbirth, like still in Canada, like just now in 2021 is still way too high. And like, it's all because of racism and negligence. Jeez. And so like when it comes down to like mental health stuff, like 
it's there's there's like a disproportional mistreatment and misdiagnosis of people of color mm-hmm. um because like there there's there's a view that like 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 I think that like medical professionals may be I can't like I'm speculating but like this is like an educated estimation that like mental health and healthcare professionals in the western world are socialized to anticipate problematic behavior out of people of color so like mm. if there's going to like it's like there's there's an impulse to um like swear off this idea of like pain or suffering because mm. it's like that's what we deserve or that's what we're made for kind of thing mm. um and that's heavy yeah like yeah. seriously well that's so heavy man so like that's I I gave up on the system pretty easily or pretty quickly. Um, oh shit! And yeah, like I I don't know what I did over those years, honestly. Like it just it was chaotic all the time, mm. and and like I think like the people that were close to me knew, but like for the most part, I just I felt terrible of constantly, course. and like I couldn't prove to anybody that it was happening. Yeah. Um, and so, that's that's yeah. sometimes the worst part of mental illness, right? Mm-hmm. Is that is that you we get so worried about that mm-hmm. that we either go like we feel like we have to perform, like you said, yeah, and or it's just not taken seriously enough. Period. Anyway, mm-hmm. and people just tell you to get you know you'll be fine. Yeah, right. You'll get over that. And that's the thing too. Like we're facing, we have societal stigma mm-hmm. on on mental illness and that kind of stuff. But then like when you have to deal with that in the system mm-hmm. like that the very system yeah. they tell you to go to right? exactly yeah yeah and a system that's not made for so many people too like yep. it's it's more dangerous to seek help for a lot of us than it is to not so mm-hmm. well you know something that i've noticed um since the, well during the last two years i'll just say the last two years uh is that just the, the huge disparity in like um <clears throat> i'm gonna try to be sensitive here for uh, the rest of the white population i can take it but (laughs) i know there's lots of sensitivity out there and um now i lost my train of thought i was going to say we need to hear what basically what i'm getting at is white people we regardless of whether we like it or not we need to hear this right we need to understand that when we turn our backs the way the other people are that people of color indigenous black people are treated is completely different right like it's completely different like it's just, it just is. I've heard enough like regular repetition stories, right? To say, and I'm, it's make me it makes me tear up, of course, because it's fucking awful, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you talk about how many mothers die during childbirth, right? And it's, there's probably a disparaging number of um, I don't I don't know I don't know why I don't like it, but BIPOC the word like mm-hmm. so you know what I'm saying though? Yeah. Like I, I um the numbers are so skewed, like in mm-hmm. that direction, right? Like yeah. say we, we look at the prison, same thing, yeah. you know, um, obviously in Canada and in the indigenous fo- people make up most of the prison population, right? Or mm-hmm. like an un, God, man, I can't even talk right now. Once I start thinking about like how kids are mistreated and, mm-hmm. and people are just so mistreated every day, it's just like, gets my brain all fucked up. Cause it's not the way it's supposed to be. Right. Right. Like yeah. it just isn't, we're supposed to be, you know, the West, right? We're so like forward thinking and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. we can't, we can't even acknowledge when we find bodies. Yeah. Right. And exactly. we can't, we can't even like 
come together as like white people and say, you know what? We're all fucking just sorry. This, we didn't know this shit happened, right? Instead, people make excuses for that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't get it, right? Like, yeah. so anyway, that kind of stuff just makes me crazy. Anyway, back to you. <laughs> and I can't remember, uh, I was, what were you talking about? Oh, we were talking about mental illness. Yeah. Yeah. And and the, the reality is... Yeah. So I went untreated for a very long time yeah. as a result. Thank you. Um, a very, very, very long time. And some of it was like not wanting to be. Like I was very resistant to medication for a long time. Mm. But I also didn't think about it very much because I couldn't get anybody to listen to the fact that I was depressed. So mm. like I didn't even think that it was an option. So I didn't really have much to refuse for a long mm. time. Um and I didn't get the opportunity to be medicated until 2019. Um, I was living in Saskatoon at the time because my ex-boyfriend lives there. And I was extremely depressed, like really, really, really depressed. It was really bad. Um, it's a very racist place, mm. um, Saskatchewan is. Uh, it's known for being racist. Uh, but like, I've heard these stories. Yeah. I spent much time there. And, and like, I don't, I think that that was the first time, um, that I was really so fatigued by the racism that it Mm. started to really like destroy me because like I've been in white dominated spaces my entire life. Like I, I grew up in white communities. I'm not, I wasn't used to seeing people that look like me. It wasn't Mm. until adulthood when I sought that out. But for the most part, I was always around white people all the time. Um, there was a time, like there were a few years that I lived on, lived in coastal BC, Mm. um, out on Vancouver Island and on Salzburg Island. Those are very white places too. Um, and so like, it's, it wasn't that, that was the problem, but like, when I went to Saskatchewan, like the fat, like the racism is just so overtly violent mm. in a way that it isn't anywhere else I've ever been. Really? Um, it's like, yeah. And I don't, and it's not because there's more white people because there isn't like, there's a huge indigenous population. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, Indigenous folks are made to be invisible. Like, this is where Colton Boucher was killed. This is where Neil Stonechild was killed yeah. by police. And, like, I think the reason why it's so bad is because, like, it's so institutionally sanctioned there. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Oh, I would agree with that. Yeah, like, it's yeah. it's not just, like, something that that is... I don't know how to describe that. I think, yeah. like, the parallel I'm trying to draw here is, like, when I lived on the West Coast, um, white people try really hard to be woke there. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> they, like, okay. they, and, like, they have this idea of, like, being, like, like there, there's an image of the progressive West Coast white person mm. that, like, everyone I met there tries to have. And, like, yeah, they're racist, too. But, like, it's not, like, in-your-face racist. Mm. Um, and, like, before I offend, like, white people on the West Coast, um, it's, like, I I think, like, I'm speaking mostly to other people of color um, on the West Coast because it's, like, there's there's a lot of harm that comes with being a well-meaning white person and having that identity. Mm. Um, But, like, when I went to Saskatchewan, it's, like, the racism is just everywhere and nobody does anything about it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's always been like that. And... It's kind of like, it's it's terrible to say, but it's kind of like every time you meet a white person, you know they're going to be unsafe. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and, and any of the allies you do find, they're guaranteed to let you down too. Mm-hmm. Because the bar is so low 
for being able to be a good person when it comes to like treating like folks of color with any amount of dignity mm. that like allies so-called allies so-called woke people um are probably the worst people there but really they have like they have the ability to like hide behind the bare minimum mm. so because they know the rhetoric they yes. know the okay i got you so like they you. can appear yeah. like woke and so like and it's also like by association too mm. so other folks will be like okay well i know this person therefore i can't be racist or like and and i think also like i met a lot of white people out there who used the cultural like the cultural racial hostility as an excuse and they would be like well i'm not as racist as my uncle that lives on a farm so therefore oh, i'm not that bad okay i got so you. like a lot of that kind of stuff yeah. so anyway i was very fatigued by this i, I was exhausted i i could it not, sounds exhausting yeah <laughs> like, I, I i couldn't deal with this kind of racism like everywhere mm -hmm. i went and like and this is me as like like a settler of color. This is not me as an indigenous person. Mm. Like that was even worse. Um, I made a lot of indigenous friends there. Um, that was where I started with like my activism. Mm. Um, but like not to pat myself on the back, it was literally because like I didn't feel safe around any white people. So yeah. that was what I did. Um, but like, that's the other thing too. Like it's, that's where like kids go missing mm -hmm. all the time all the time and so when you make those ties to the community that loss is also yours yeah. and and it's very very hard to to sustain like over and over like losing young people to to gun violence to mm -hmm. overdoses like all of it like it's it's all in there mm -hmm. um like right next to like the hippie white arts community as well like mm -hmm. you know like they, they're coexisting in two totally different worlds yeah um, so I was living there. That's quite the contrast. Mm hmm Yeah. Um, I should say my ex-boyfriend's white. Um, mm -hmm. so I, I was living there because I was trying to see if our relationship would mm -hmm. pan out. It did not. Um, I remember something you said, this is what I was going to say earlier about what you said last week. Oh, okay. You said, this really impressed me. It impressed something upon me that, okay. first of all, that you're pretty perceptive, but also it reminded me of how, um, you mentioned the vetting process for Michelle and white people. And oh, yeah. I got such a kick out of that. I was like, <laughs> it, it never occurred to me until you said it. No, totally. When I'm like, wait a minute. I've been vetted. You've been vetted. <laughs> you've, been ve you've been vetted by Michelle and Darcy. So like, that's a thing. I know. But I'm like, like, also Michelle is native Calgarian. Like if she's yeah. going to let a white person into her house, clearly that's a safe white person. <laughs> I, I was like, I all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, this is... She, and she's and I love them. They love me. Like this is yeah. amazing. I never. Yeah, she spoke very very highly of you before we actually met. So I was like, okay, this is a cool dude. That's that's far out. Yeah. When you said that, I was like, I never considered the fact that <laughs> there was a process that they had to vet me. And I and it made me think this week. I was laughing when I thought of it. I go, I gotta like try to do that. Like tell people to like make sure you vet your white people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's funny, man. Because Dude, I think white people need to vet their white people. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Everybody needs to vet their white people, yeah. man. And I bet, you, and honestly, if you're a white person like myself, we, like, seriously, <laughs> I know how, how we are. Like, it's now, thankfully, things have been pointed out that I'm like, how dare we, right? Like, but it's it's so, uh, fuck, man, vet your white people. <laughs> make, yeah. Make sure you vet... <laughs> 
And that's a funny thing too. Like it's not it's not even a conscious thing. Like no. I didn't actually bring it up to Michelle being like, oh, he's white. Is he okay? Like it's yeah, it's no, not no. Like that came I, up. I didn't get that yeah. impression. No. But it's I think it's something that racialized people do like on instinct. Like yeah. it's just another one of our like shape shifting like survival mechanisms exactly. that like we just do. It's like, are these people safe? And like and that I, I also, never would have yeah. thought of until you said it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's another one of our like I don't know like brown people superpowers i suppose but. yeah <laughs> yeah but it's it's really it's really important mm-hmm. and it's uh, I, I mean i think it's super important but also really shitty that you had to develop uh, a method of observing white people based on that right like mm-hmm. based on our poor history right with with people of color all colors right yeah. um it, it's where it comes from for sure so i just thought man that is the that's brilliant. Like, mm-hmm. make sure you vet your white people out there. Eh? <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, it's, it's important. important. You know what too. the title of this podcast is going to be? Vet your white people. Vet your white person. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to lose so many followers. <laughs> I told. Are you kidding me? The fact that the, whatever followers we were going to lose based on that would have happened last year when we That's were doing true. like yeah. all kinds of podcasts. Which on this I stuff. did not listen to. I'm sorry. Oh, but. it's okay. We. <laughs> It, it's just the truth. That's all. We we yeah. just want to talk about things. Well, as... like, actually, that was another one of our shared conversations about like losing our friends after we start talking about racism. Yeah, right? like yeah, that's right. And just like the paring down of the shitty people that are like standing by and hiding behind wokeness and allyship. Mm-hmm. And when you get rid of those people, then you get your like real solid people. Yeah. yeah. Then 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 things like they start to solidify, right? And then you can learn more, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Because um, you can have those deeper conversations. Exactly. You know that those people can handle it and that they're up for it. That's you know? right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. So basically, I'm like trying to survive racism in Saskatoon, which is a whole other thing. I mm-hmm. could write my own podcast about that. <laughs> and um, why would why don't you? <laughs> it's 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 coming. It's yeah. Coming. Cool. Um, <laughs> I'll I'll be your first fucking <laughs> listener too. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Um. And, uh, yeah, my mental health was really, really going downhill, Mm -hmm. like really bad. And like to the point that it was the worst it had been for several years. Mm -hmm. Like I had, I had started self-harming again and, um, I wasn't sleeping or I was, yeah, I wasn't sleeping at all. Um, I was coming home from work and sitting in my bed and sitting there for six hours straight until I fell asleep Mm -hmm. and then I would wake up and go to work and do it all over again. Um, and yeah, like it was taking over my life and I started getting these intrusive, intrusive thoughts and I'm like, okay, I've, I've got to take care of this. Mm -hmm. So, um, I got the resource or I don't even remember how this happened, but I ended up attending this clinic called switch. Um, and, and it's a clinic on the West side of Saskatoon, which is considered like the ghetto side because it's where all the natives live and it's low income Mm. and all of that. But it's this amazing clinic. I've, I'm plugging them because it's the best mental health service I've gotten in my life. And it, it, it totally, as somebody who gave up on the system, like so intensely from Mm -hmm. so much medical trauma lived and witnessed, like I, my, my heart is with healthcare professionals 100% mm-hmm. and mental health professionals 100% after this experience. So Switch is this clinic that operates in like the low income west side um, of Saskatoon. And it's basically like volunteer doctors and social workers and like a team of medical students from the mm-hmm. U of S. And they work there um, on like a volunteer basis. I think oh, the students get credit, right but on. it's like people that want to be there yep. and they are the most compassionate, proactive listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically like, are giving a whole health 
experience to like the most underprivileged population yeah. and treating them with so much respect. And Those clinics are usually the best ones. Yeah. Yeah. The best ever. Yeah. Um, so that was where I ended up. Um, I don't even remember how I got this referral. I'm pretty sure like I was, I had a case manager through the hospital or something. I don't even remember how it happened, but regardless, I ended up at this clinic and, um, I met a nurse practitioner who spent time talking to me about like all this stuff that was going on with like my brain and, and like why I felt so shitty and, Mm -hmm. and what was going on. And, um, she so first thing she did was she got me a letter to get me off work and I'm like what do you mean I have to stop working and she's like you have to stop working because your job is making you so stressed and you're not sleeping and it is completely contributing to your poor mental health you have to take like three Mm -hmm. months off and I'm like how am I going to take three months off I need like to work and so she set it all up for me so that I could be on EI and um like she didn't do it for me but she gave me the steps for how to navigate um getting EI, getting income support, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, she got me on my first antidepressants. And yeah, when was this? This was August of 2019. And um, yeah, antidepressants like gave me my life back in, mm-hmm. in every important way. And so like, I, I know that there's a lot of folks that don't want to go on drugs for whatever reason, mm-hmm. and I respect that. Um, but after like my experience, like I, I personally don't see any harm or shame and doing it if it makes you feel like a better person, if mm-hmm. it makes you feel like yourself. And like, there's no reason to be ashamed if you need some chemical help in getting mm-hmm. yourself right again. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to like approach this from like a trauma informed decolonial perspective in that like, as someone who has survived colonization, who like has like, like my family survived colonization, my people have. Um, as somebody who like has ties to colonization on Turtle Island because of that, mm-hmm. um, like, and who has like, who, who has the trauma that I have, like all of the trauma that we have as like colonization survivors and people of color, like that fucks with us over time. Mm-hmm. Like it makes sense that so many of us in this generation are depressed and like, anxious and Mm -hmm. suicidal and let we have substance abuse problems like that like I said like that pain travels through our families until it gets Mm -hmm. felt and like I have no shame like knowing that I'm a depressed person or that I'm a neurodivergent or disabled person Mm -hmm. because like that's that's what you fucking colonizers did Mm -hmm. (laughs) for real like you did it to my ancestors you did it to my parents and now you're doing it to me Mm -hmm. and so like if it means that I have to take a pill like every day Mm -hmm. to feel okay and to survive this world that we live in, you better give me those fucking pills, man. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Like that's that's the very least that 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 this modern world can offer us if, mm-hmm. if this is what we need to survive. And it's not even about being like, you know, strong enough. Like like, fuck that. Like that that's some terrible. Like it's not a moral weakness or no, strength. Anyway, it isn't. yeah. And like I think also it's got nothing just, to like, do with that shit. If there's anybody else that like is trying to recover, and you're also like from like a cultural community that doesn't allow for Mm -hmm. this stuff. Like I think it's really important to like note and always keep in mind the fact that we have like a shared experience of oppression, collective Mm -hmm. oppression and what that does to us as a people overall, Mm -hmm. because like it makes sense if we're getting depressed, it makes sense if we're getting sick, if we're living with chronic illness Mm -hmm. as a result of everything that we're carrying, Mm -hmm. whether that's our personal experiences or what we've taken on Mm -hmm. ancestrally, um, it makes sense. And like, 
And I think also too, like people that are like, I don't want to offend any like anti-vaxxers or anything, but like some um, people you can't get around offending. It's true. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Not necessarily them, but I mean, some yeah. people you can't, right? Um, just like the folks that are like, well, I don't want to take anything like because my brain is perfect the way it is, and like my body's good without foreign things in it. And like, I get where you're coming from, but it's also like when you've experienced this much trauma the chemistry in your brain is like not okay because mm -hmm. otherwise you wouldn't want to kill yourself every day. Yeah. So like if that's the case, like, and, and I think that's it too. Like when you're, when you're so depressed and you're used to being depressed for so long and especially if you're like needing to prove it to professionals, like mm -hmm. I had to, like you don't think anything's wrong. So like it doesn't occur to you that being suicidal all the time is not a healthy way for your brain to be. Mm -hmm. So like, I got my life back from being on antidepressants. I've been on them since 2019. And getting on ADHD meds, I will say, has given me like the greatest life I never ever thought I could have. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a so new another thing. added bonus to your yeah. life, more brain chemistry balancing. Yes, exactly. Right on. So like, yeah, antidepressants got my life back. ADHD meds gave me the best life possible. Yeah. Um, and like, to sort of explain what that's like, like I'm, I think that it even, it alchemizes everything even more for me because it's like, I realize that if I can feel this good in this body mm -hmm. living in this time, like first off there's grief around like, look at what my ancestors were denied that mm -hmm. we haven't gotten to feel this way because we're so exhausted from yeah. having to like exist and fight and never rest in mm -hmm. like a white supremacist world. But also, like, I'm so happy that I get to experience this because mm -hmm. I know that that kind of healing, like, reverberates mm -hmm. and, and it has a lasting effect that goes all different kinds of ways. And, like, I think, yeah, like, the, what it comes down to for my own healing journey and, like, why I do it and, like, why I commit to it and where my, my – um, my reason for wanting to be in recovery mm -hmm. comes from my motivation is the fact that like we as racialized folks, like we deserve that joy. And I want to feel that joy as much as I possibly can, because when I do, then my community does. And when, mm -hmm. my, when my community does, we thrive and we love each other and we, we set the stage for the next generation to be able to do better things. Mm -hmm. And like, it's, it's a constant, like every day I'm committing to that type of like decolonial way of thinking, like that community way of thinking of like, mm -hmm. when one of us is unwell, we're all unwell. When one mm -hmm. of us is well, like wellness is brought to everybody. And like for me to be well, it's, I, I still wrestle with this a little bit because there is some element of guilt. Like mm -hmm. anytime that like, I, I know that like I've spoken with like a lot of my indigenous friends about this, about how like, there's guilt when you do well because so many people around you are suffering. Yeah. Um, but it's also like, I'm, I, I wrestle with that, but at the end of the day, it's like the more joy I get to feel, the more healing my family experiences, mm -hmm. the more healing my community experiences. And yeah, like it's, you, you can't heal for other people, but mm -hmm. like your healing has an effect on other people. Of course it does. And that's the, that's the other side of the guilt. The, mm -hmm. the feeling of guilt is to be, aware that even though we feel guilty about it, like that's natural, right? Mm -hmm. Because we don't want to be different than our, than our neighbor. Yeah. Like, and so that guilt of being different, but it's okay to realize that, yeah, you know what? That's all right. I can then give joy to them. Mm 
-hmm. right? Because that's how it gets spread is through people, right? So, um, but that guilt will still potentially be there mm -hmm. and, and just be delivering from the other side of guilt, the yeah. love, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so, okay, I had a question. Now I don't know what it was. Um, Check your notes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have notes and everything. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I know what it was. We, yeah, abstinence and harm reduction. So yeah, I, I really wanted to hear what you have to say about that and have a conversation about it. Of course, yeah. yeah. So yeah, this time in my life in 2019 in Saskatoon, um, worst time in my life, but also like the best in terms of like once I started finding those resources for healing. Mm -hmm. um, I that's how I. When, when, I, when I first got involved with like harm reduction, like community harm reduction initiatives, mm -hmm. um, a friend of mine, I'm gonna give him a shout out. His name is Tuck Gordon. Um, he was running an Instagram account Tuck! at the time. <laughs> he was running an Instagram account at the time called uh, YXC Harm Reduction. And now he works for um, Prairie Harm Reduction, which mm -hmm. used to be AIDS Saskatoon. Oh, okay. um, so they've been helping out folks on the West End and kind of everywhere like who have like addiction issues um, to give them a safe space uh to to use uh they mm -hmm. they have um saskatchewan's actually first safe consumption site that they opened i think last year cool um is it their saskatchewan's first or only um no, they must have more the only one. now yeah i don't know um Shit. but it was the first at the time yeah um, cool i don't remember if they opened before or after covid i want to say before because mm. they they had it ready for a long time then they lost funding because mm -hmm. you know the government like hates yep. giving people help well the change um, every time the government changes it derails the self mm -hmm. the, the safe consumption site exactly right? yeah. yeah so yeah they um i know that their funding was on hold but they actually ended up getting funded by the community and oh, right um on. that's that's how they keep their operations alive now so anyway my friend tuck um i met him through instagram because he was doing this as like a personal like volunteer project on his own to start mm -hmm. so he would basically like walk around his community on the west side like pick up syringes and stuff that he found pick up garbage and then like mm -hmm. hand out snacks to like everybody he found yeah. um and like i was just so like i love this i'm like why isn't more people doing this like this is great like mm -hmm. I'd, I'd, I'd love to hand out snacks and like you know connect with people mm -hmm. um i'm also a serial volunteer though like i, I volunteer yeah. for everything um I've, I've lived in a lot of cities, and so, like, the first thing I do when I move to a new city is I sign up for volunteer stuff, because yeah. um, I'm a keener <laughs> that way, but also because, like, I want to meet, like, like-minded people. I think yeah. that's, like, also a, like, it's not just, like, a needing, I, I think it's a way to want to find your people, but I think mm -hmm. it's also um, a survival mechanism as well, because mm -hmm. sometimes if you can't find your own people, you're in danger. Yeah. So that's that's partly why I do it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I found Tuck, and um, then his basically he got picked up by what is now Prairie Harm Reduction, mm -hmm. and he works with them full time. Um, but yeah, like he sort of introduced me to this this uh, concept of like being super compassionate to people who use drugs and like. Wait a second. <laughs> Wait, this has come up a couple of times on this podcast. Compassion for people who use drugs and drink and etc. Huh. Okay. Tell me about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is a new idea. This compassion <laughs> thing. So like basically harm reduction is essentially like not being an asshole to people who use drugs <laughs> <laughs> or not being afraid of poor people. That's another yeah. thing too. I think you're right about that. Those are good descriptions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like that's I think the easiest way to say it. Like, um, 
Yeah, and so I, I sort of went down this rabbit hole after that, and I don't know if it was before or after, but like, I don't know if you guys listen to the Crackdown podcast. I don't. Darcy, do you? Okay, so it's this podcast by this guy named Garth Mullins out of Vancouver, okay. um, and he is a chronic methadone user because um, he was addicted to like everything yeah. for a long time, and um, yeah, it's him and a whole bunch of people from like the downtown east side in mm -hmm. Vancouver, which like is disproportionately like one of the poorest and most like drug afflicted communities in Canada yeah. um, and very like disproportionately indigenous as well. Mm -hmm. um, so him and a whole bunch of those folks, they're like on this board and they, they put together this podcast and it's won a whole bunch of awards and like, cool. they're basically talking about like trying to get safe consumption and safe supply in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, and like in, in a whole bunch of different episodes, like he's been on like meetings with like, the government and like mm. very politely cussing them out and it's awesome that is awesome um but yeah like watch listening to that podcast and then like sort of um okay what's it called again uh crackdown crackdown okay. yeah um so yeah plug for crackdown i guess uh for sure so <laughs> plug them up yeah uh so like with listening to crackdown and um also like following along with what prairie harm reduction has been doing mm -hmm. um i sort of started to like learn a little bit more about like the concept of mutual aid, mm -hmm. um, which is essentially like giving generously to your community, knowing that like, like not with, without expecting anything in return. Mm -hmm. And it's not charity. It's, yeah. it's like, it's, it, it's, it stems from this idea that we're all equal people mm -hmm. and that we're all equally deserving of dignity. Mm -hmm. And so when you give mutual aid to somebody, like say you give them 20 bucks and it like helps them buy groceries, like it's not a donation. It's not mm -hmm. charity because charity implies the idea that you're above this person and mm -hmm. that they need your help. I like that. Yeah. But like mutual like aid that. is like when you give somebody money knowing like you're my community member, you deserve to eat. Here's mm -hmm. 20 bucks kind of thing. So that's Holy like. Holy crap. That just yeah. like, that shifts a whole lot. Eh? Totally. Yeah. yeah. So a brain shift. Yeah. And so like mutual aid is, mm -hmm. is this amazing concept and it's not new. Like it really isn't Definitely new. Definitely not. Yeah. Um, in like, in any way, like in my background, that's mm -hmm. something we do all the time like in I've learned a little bit more about this in recent years because I've made friends um, who were born in the Philippines whereas I wasn't mm -hmm. um, but I've learned a little bit about like what it's like to survive under like a total like a fascist re regime dictatorship yeah. yeah dictatorship and um basically mutual aid is the way that people survive. They like, mm -hmm. they take care of each other. They look out for one another. Like it's, it's communal. And like, everybody knows that like, you know, the man's not going to take care of you. So we got to yeah. take care of ourselves. Kind of, we got to take care of each other. And so mm -hmm. this concept isn't new. It's, it's also like, a central tenet to like indigenous cultures as mm -hmm. well. So, and it's been, a, it's been a central tenet, I think for like, um, for some, some of us, it's been the central tenet for, mm -hmm. for our lives. Right. Yeah. And, and coming into recovery, it was even reinforced that that yeah. is, it's essential. Yeah. It's interesting how many, how many groups actually do adopt that idea. For sure. Right? Yeah. Because it's so sensible. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's super sensible. Mm -hmm. And like, when we share our resources, like everybody benefits kind of thing. Totally. Not like in a socialist way. And like, no. a, well, maybe it's a socialist Maybe. Way. Who cares? I don't know. Like... <laughs> But honestly, who cares? I didn't, like, I didn't make that connection right away, but yeah, yeah, like maybe. Yeah, you're right. Who cares? And, and we are democratic socialists in Canada. That's true. Right? Like yeah. it's 100% who we are. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's and it's okay, right? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, socialist isn't are. a dirty word. Yeah. I guess I've said many other dirty words so far. Well, I mean, here's the thing, right? Like, if we're if we're gonna be thinking about helping each other, then we should give so others can live. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah. Right. Like, and it's okay if you can't give money, you g- can give something else. Yeah. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And um and yeah, so this time in my life too, like this was. Um, around this time that I was getting involved um, and volunteering with um, then called AIDS Saskatoon, um, I was broke as shit. Like mm-hmm. I, um, my EI had run out or I couldn't get on it. I can't remember, but um, I was on income support in Saskatchewan, which like is under fire right now because it's not giving people enough to live. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like it was, it was really, really difficult. And so I was a food bank user myself at this mm-hmm. time. I was like, I didn't have anything to my name, but I had my time. I had my time because mm-hmm. I was I was off work on stress leave and I wanted to make a difference in the community that was actually taking care of me. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I, uh, I volunteered with them. What else was I doing? Um, gosh, I don't know. I, I, I was doing everything I could without the resources. And um, yeah, and then I did this clothing swap. Um, I don't know why we're talking about this, but sure. Um, I did this clothing swap um, in December of that year um, where I actually got a grant from Eco-Friendly Sask, um, which I had found through another friend who's into like um, environmental low-waste stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I got this grant for like $1,000, which was really all I needed to rent out this coffee shop. And then it was open to the public. Everybody was welcome and they could like bring clothes and swap them. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, like I didn't realize how much the community needed it, um, particularly because like I was living on the west side too, but I was living in like the really gentrified part of the, mm. of the west side. So like the part that was two blocks away from all the cool new expensive restaurants, mm. not like a couple blocks down where like people were dying from overdoses. Yeah. So the thing is like it's, it's the same amazing community. it could be a difference of four blocks. Exactly. Yeah. Or like the train tracks or, or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I think that that event really brought a lot of people together and forced them to kind of see their neighbors Mm -hmm. in a really important way. Um, and I saw it, like, I think I saw it because I was literally on stress leave from the amount of racism in the city. Mm -hmm. So like, that was something that I was seeing really clearly, but like, I don't know if everybody else saw it until Mm -hmm. that happened. And I really like... So I'm, I'm also, my job outside of, well, my job is I'm a social media manager. Mm-hmm. Prior to me having this current job, I did all the social media for this clothing swap. Mm-hmm. So I had made an Instagram account. I did all the posts. I did all the designing. And I had written all the copy for it. And, like, I, because it was my project, I kind of, like, I literally lent my voice to it. And I spoke about it in a way that, like, I wanted people to, like, really look at Mm -hmm. um their own biases and really come together for the people in their own neighborhood that needed this stuff and like i really tried to stress like it's not charity it's Mm -hmm. it's these are your neighbors you are equal people like there's no reason why someone two houses down from you doesn't have enough to eat like that's Mm -hmm. not okay kind of thing and I hope it resonated. Like mm. I did, um, I had a lot of support from local businesses, which was great. So yeah. I was able to make those connections that way. Um, but overall, like I just, I, I really hope that, like I, I was doing it not for myself, but like as a response to what I saw was really needed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't know if a lot of people know that I was like 
I didn't have any food at that time myself. Like I, I would assume people didn't know that. And, and I think part of the reason why I did it too is because like I was being given like $600 a month to live, which Mm -hmm. is crazy. Um, and, uh, I still made it happen. I still Mm -hmm. found a way to make, make it happen. I still found a way to share that. And I think like, and that's what the heart of mutual aid is too. Like the people that Mm -hmm. participate in it the most often don't have a lot, Yeah. but like you give what you can because you know, like Mm -hmm. they're, they're also in a similar position as you. Right. So yeah. So I, I did that and I, I want to say that like, I did it and the community was better as a result. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's the case, but I did it because the community needed it. Mm-hmm. And since then, like I've been very blessed like to still maintain those connections. Um, this was right before COVID hit because yeah. I moved back to Calgary in March, the following March mm-hmm. because of that, because I was broke and I yeah. had to come back home and, and get my bearings and figure out what my next move was going to be. So I've been back in Calgary since March of 2020. Okay, since the first lockdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So this happened like a couple months before that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that was that was what happened. And so that's kind of where my mind was at when I moved back to Calgary. I was very into community organizing at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, really into like mutual aid projects, like seeing like... Um, I think it was like, so Aid Saskatoon or Prairie Heart Production operates on the west side where it is like historically like an indigenous community, a low income community. Um, I was curious to see like what, for example, like Bear Clan Patrol was up to Mm -hmm. here in Calgary and like those kinds of initiatives and how I could get involved and then COVID hit. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't do the big volunteering thing when I moved back here. Um, I wanted to, but it it wasn't an option at that Mm -hmm. time. And um, so that first year, I was really kind of just like sitting at home trying to figure out like what of the things I wanted were really possible mm-hmm. and like really not knowing if anything could be possible. Like I didn't have concrete ideas about what I wanted to do at that time. Yeah. I really, I was coming out of a really traumatic year and I, I really just needed to rest and mm-hmm. recover and and be here. And like I, I grew up in Calgary. I was born and raised here. Um, never had really great relationships with my family. And since that time, um, my mom and I have been working on our relationship and it's going really well. I live with her now. Right on. Um, and it's going okay. That's cool. Actually, like, really great. I like living at home. I didn't yeah. expect to. Like, it's, again, millennial joke that everybody boomerangs, but, like, I waited until <laughs> I was 30 to boomerang because I really <laughs> didn't want to. Yeah. Um, but honestly, like, it's it's kind of great. Like, I like it. I live with my mom and my brother mm-hmm. now, and it's 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 awesome. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't mind because... living with my folks in my 20s. It was all right. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, like, I... I, I totally get why I couldn't do it up until now. Yeah. Like considering like our history and like what being at home was bringing up for me. I think yeah. that's the biggest thing, like being able to own that. Um, but now that I'm actually doing it, like I, I really appreciate them and I really love mm. them. And it's like, it's, it's a really positive space. And so, yeah, so that's what I'm up to now. <laughs> cool. Well, you know, um, part of what's really cool about yeah. that is that as kids, like with parents, we go back to live with them. As we get older, we realize how real they really are. Mm-hmm. Like, do you know what I mean? Like how real as humans they are. Yeah. As opposed to just parents. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they're kind of like roommates now. Yeah. It changes the relationship. Yeah. For sure. it, 
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that You're in welcome. a more informed adult way. Oh, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I was trying to sense where you were going. I was like, yeah, that's pretty much where I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like they are like roommates in the sense yeah. of like, I thought that my mom would cook for us and she doesn't. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so she's like, like, you're on your own. Yeah, exactly. And now my brother's keto. So now I just like eat all the bagels to myself. That's cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, like living at home is cool. Um, I have an older sister too. And she okay. was like a, a mother figure to me. And like, we've been working on our relationship too. And now we're very close as well. Mm. And yeah, like being with my family, honestly, is making me very happy. I'm so like, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my family in a way that I never have been before. I think mm. because I understand like our shared cultural struggle, ancestral mm. struggle. Like I, I'm thankful to them for everything mm -hmm. that they've given me and everything that I share with them and like I know that if it weren't for them like I wouldn't have the things I have and mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do and like and and I think it's interesting too like because like Filipinos are are very like family focused people mm -hmm. like okay. like we we love our families we don't leave them typically mm -hmm. like it's it they're it's not uncommon for like culturally for us to remain like family units well into like later in life. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that's kind of cool actually. It is cool. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, it's, it's a good way to live. Um, I didn't experience that though. Like I moved no. out at 18 cause yeah. I was fighting with my mom all the time and like different. Yeah. So like, because of that, like, I think I always felt, I think that contributed to feelings of like not being, Filipino enough, not being mm. authentic enough because my family was not cohesive. Um, and that like, we weren't super religious towards the end either. We grew mm. up like that, but we weren't towards the end. And so were you, did you grow up Catholic or Christian? Yes. Catholic. Catholic. Yeah. And my parents were like involved in the church and everything. Mm. Like it was, it was a really big part of our lives until like my parents split up essentially. And then, yeah. and then like my mom, like mind you, like my mom is still Catholic and it's something that's really important to her. Like it's mm -hmm. where she gets her strength and that's where she like, accesses like like her piece and I respect that because I'm glad sure. she can have that um not quite the same with me but like I think that mm -hmm. as adults we've come to like respect and appreciate that we both like find healing in something bigger than us yeah it doesn't matter yeah. what it is exactly yeah. yeah um but yeah so I'm I didn't experience that like sense of always being able to depend on your family mm -hmm. um I think like, well, I know that they wanted that for me. They wanted, they gave me everything they knew how to give me, mm -hmm. but I knew that wasn't safe for me. And so I sought that elsewhere. But I think because I worked so hard at like establishing like a selfhood and an identity outside of my family, like deliberately different from them, like mm -hmm. that has really made me embrace the things we have in common now. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And it's cool. As we grow up, we get to do that with our parents, right? Mm -hmm. With whoever's around us that, that we care about, we get to actually form these really incredibly deep relationships with people that we thought we knew, mm -hmm. right? Like, because we change, so do our parents. Like, they grow. Like, yeah. they're never just the same people that we thought they were, right? Like, they aren't. And, like, something that I, that was really nice for me to discover later in life was, like, I mentioned earlier, like, you can't 
you can't heal for other people Mm -hmm. or like your healing isn't transferable. So like any healing I do for myself, I can't do that work for someone else. But like, I also gravely underestimated the amount of healing that other people are capable of. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't have any control of of what other people decide to do and like the kind of growth that they're seeking out. But like my, my mom, my siblings, like they've all done their, their own healing as well. Mm -hmm. Not to say it's done. None of us are done, but like, but they've joined their own process. Yeah, exactly. Like they've, they've been on their own journeys and like to be able to meet now in Mm -hmm. in these different places in our lives, like there's just so much more mutual understanding and so much more respect. And Mm -hmm. like, um, I want these relationships now. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the key right there. We, you want them now Mm -hmm. as opposed to feel like you have to have them. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They become relationships. And that's the cool thing about obviously growing up, but also healing. Because mm-hmm. then you can start to see, I mean, until we heal, it's hard to get closer to people, right? Yes. So as we heal, we're getting closer, mm-hmm. you know, and that's such a nice thing yeah. as we get older. Yeah. Right on. Cool. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Because mm. that was pretty good. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, uh, thank you for, thank you for all that. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. What time is it, Darcy? Hour, ooh, hour and a half. Good job. Thank you. Yeah. Can I add a thing? Sure, Before please you hit do. That button. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I wasn't. I was just checking. We okay. Can, we can keep going. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say that like it's it's so important to be able to call out your own shit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that like whenever I meet folks on their different healing journeys, whether that looks like sobriety or whether that looks like excessive therapy or mm-hmm. like cultural reclamation or whatever that is, like. It's, it's really, it's important to know like who's hurt you mm-hmm. and, and to be able to be angry at the right people. Yeah. But very often it stops there and there's a refusal to look in the mirror mm-hmm. and the greatest amount of healing that has come to me in my life has been the very uncomfortable process of mm-hmm. looking at where I have fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, because like, just because we are hurt and abused and we've survived all these terrible things it doesn't make us perfect people Mm. it doesn't alleviate Mm -hmm. our responsibility to be good people and yeah like i'm that's where i'm at now today Mm -hmm. like in in my healing journey is like being able to be like wow i was an asshole to all these different people Mm -hmm. and like being able to like first off like trace where that history of violence comes from for myself but also like how do I actually intercept this? Like, what is it that is triggering me to be such a jerk to all these people? <laughs> and how do I stop it? Mm-hmm. And cause that's a me thing. It's not a them thing. For sure. Like, no one else is responsible for that. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where I'm at now. And it's like, and I think also like the healing is important because if you just jump to this spot of like, where did I go wrong? Mm-hmm. Like you can't, assess yourself objectively or with compassion well and i think that's what that's the key is that if you jump to any spot that you're not actually at you won't feel the full exactly. the full spectrum of this right yeah like, of the healing process mm-hmm. and you did you're keyed on as far as i'm concerned from most of the theories that i've read about or heard about like accountability of what we have done is essential for pro for growth totally. like us it's essential like if we don't take accountability for our side of things, we're in a lot of trouble. We'll yes. just keep perpetuating those cycles, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or we'll keep thinking that it's not our problem. That's right. That it's someone else's fault. Yeah, exactly. So 
that's something I wish that I had been told earlier. Right on. Like I wish somebody had told me, like actually, it's you. <laughs> like, of course, nobody <laughs> was gonna say that to me, but like I, I think that it's it's important to hear. It's important to be able to be honest with yourself because if you can't be honest with yourself, you can't show up fully for mm-hmm. anyone else or with anyone else. And like the richness of that intimacy is what creates those better relationships, and like that's the foundation of it. So yeah. That's that's what I wish I would have heard, and maybe someone else needs to hear that. But yeah, right you on. Gotta, you got to call out your own shit if you're gonna call mm-hmm. out other people's shit. You got to call out yours first. So right on. Thank you, yeah. Mary. Yeah, you're welcome.